Good morning. If you have your Bibles, you can turn with me to Jonah chapter 3. Uh, but actually, before we, before we jump into that, uh, I actually have a quick announcement I need to make as well, uh, which you may have seen actually if you've read the bulletin already this week. Uh, because in the bulletin there, on page 3, there's a letter in the bulletin from Pastor Darren over at Steel Heights. Uh, last week, uh, we were actually informed by Fresh Mana Fellowship uh, that they were actually exploring the idea of entering into a merger uh, with Steel Heights Baptist Church. And they sort of officially let us know uh, that they were making these plans just, uh, again, just last week. Uh, both churches are still looking at what that's going to look like. It's still not finalized. They still have to go to a vote of their congregations. But uh, if it goes forward, that would mean big changes to Fresh Manna and to Steel Heights and for us here at Northgate as well. So really, we're just sort of asking that we'd all be in prayer uh, for all of our churches just going forward and just praying that God's will would be done in all of these things. And uh, we'll do our best to keep you informed of any developments as we sort of are made aware of them. Um, but yeah, with that out of the way, uh, let's turn our attention to Jonah chapter 3 as we continue looking at this book, talking about this wayward prophet. Uh, and I'll, I'll read our passage this morning. Uh, if you'd like to follow along, uh, it's going to be Jonah, the entire chapter, chapter 3, verses 1 to 10. It says, Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. And let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God had saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them. And he did not do it. Let's open with prayer. Father God, um, it's been really an amazing journey looking at Jonah so far. And Lord, we just again come with, with expectation and excitement as we look at this next chapter in Jonah's life. And we pray that, Lord, as we go through this again, um, that you would be in it, that our Holy Spirit would be our teacher and our guide, that you would lead us and guide us into truth. And Lord, May this not just be a story from the Bible about long ago places, but uh, Lord, may this be a, a truth from the word of God that actually enters in our life today 
and brings transformation. Um, yeah, may, may this truth find just a good foundation in our lives. Uh, may it change us. May it refine us. Uh, may it help us to walk more and more in obedience to you. And that, Lord, I just pray that you would speak to us. Um, speak to us through your word this day. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, there's a famous story that comes from the Rose Bowl, which is a football game. Uh, it was played on New Year's Day, 1929, between Georgia Tech and the University of California. And in that game, a man named Roy Regals recovered a fumble for California. But somehow in all the chaos, he became confused and he actually started running with the ball 65 yards in the wrong direction. One of his teammates actually finally caught up to him and tackled him just before he ran into the other team's end zone, scoring points for the opposing team. To make matters worse, when his team attempted to punt, Georgia Tech blocked the kick and they scored a safety. And that strange play came actually in the first half of the, of the football game. And everyone who was watching the game was asking the same question, what is the coach going to do with Roy Riggles in the second half? Well, the players, after the first half, left the field. They went into the dressing room. They all sat down on the benches, all of them except Roy. Roy just put his blanket around his shoulders, sat in a corner, put his face in his hands, and he cried like a baby. And typically in football, during halftime, the coach has a lot to say. But that day, the coach was just quiet. No doubt he was trying to decide, what do I do with Roy Riggles? Well, when the timekeeper came in and announced there was three minutes before they were playing the, before starting the second half, the coach just looked at the team and simply said, the same team that started the first half is going to start the second. Well, the players got out and started out onto the field, all except Roy. Roy didn't budge. The coach looked back at him and called him again, says, still he didn't move. So the coach went over where Riggles was sitting and he said, Roy, didn't you hear me? I said, the same team that started the first half is starting the second. But Roy looked up and just said, coach, I can't do it. I've ruined you. I've ruined the University of California. I've ruined myself. I couldn't face that crowd in the stadium to save my life. But then the coach reached out, put his hand on Roy's shoulder and simply said to him, Roy, Get up and get back in there. You see, the game is only half over. And you know, Roy Riggles would forever be remembered for that moment. In fact, the nickname Roy Wrong Way Riggles would stick the rest of his life. And that one play is widely considered to be the worst play in college football history. And yet Roy went back into the game. And everyone watching that day would tell you that they've never seen a man play football with more passion than they saw Roy Riggles play during that second half. And this morning as we come again to the book of Jonah, I think it would be a good description to call chapter 3, Jonah's second half. Because just like Roy, Jonah spent a good part of the first half of this book running in the wrong direction. Um, you know, like Roy Riggles, Jonah would have kept on running until God finally managed to tackle him and show him the error of his ways. Like Roy Riggles, I'm sure that for Jonah, getting back into the play would have been tough 
And it would have been a very humbling moment. And it would have been humbling not just, not just because of his own mistakes that he had to face, not just because of the shame of his own stubbornness you know, that he had to face, but I think it would have been a very hard moment for Jonah simply because of the way it came about. Because if you look at Jonah chapter 2, verse 10, it says, And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. And I think John Ortberg has the best commentary on this verse when he says, You may ask, why do the English translators of the Bible not use a more dignified word, a more churchy word, than vomit? He says, well, it's because the original inspired Hebrew text, the word is actually even more graphic. Jonah was not dropped off on a beach by an angel. The fish had a protein spill. It tossed its cookies. It lost its light. It launched the food shuttle. It took a ride on the regurgitron. Jonah was not a tragic figure covered in suffering. He's a ridiculous figure covered in shrimp cocktail or tuna tartare or whatever it is a great fish eats. And you know, in that moment, sitting on that beach, I wonder if Jonah looked around and just kind of took inventory out of his life and just sort of asked the question, what now? I mean, where does a person go from there? Well, thankfully, Jonah doesn't have to wait very long for his answer because Jonah chapter 3, verse 1, says, Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. Now, if you were to go back to chapter 1, you'd actually notice that that's almost word for word what God had asked Jonah to do in the first place. Uh, we're, we're halfway through the book of Jonah, and we're actually basically right back where we started. Uh, but here's the difference this time. Verse 3 says, So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. You see, this time, there's no more running. There's no more fleeing. This is Jonah's second half. And despite, you know, all the mistakes and all the bad attitudes and the stubbornness that Jonah had displayed, we realize God is not done with him. Despite Jonah's failure, God says, Jonah, get up and get back out there and let's try it again. And we pick up the rest of the story in chapter 3, uh, where it says, So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Then it says, Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. And I just want to stop there for a second because. That verse is really, I think, trying to convey to us some idea of the greatness of the city of Nineveh. The Bible was calling it a great city, but now we're told it's an exceedingly great city. Uh, chapter 4 will later tell us it held more than 120,000 people. We're even told that it would take three days just to walk through it. And that's probably if you took time to stop and see all the sights along the way. And there were sights because Nineveh, I mean, it had public parks, it had gardens and aqueducts and irrigation, you know, and canals and marketplaces. And I mean, they had built a great wall around the city with 15 gates that was said to be more than seven miles in circumference. It's all a picture of a city that was unrivaled. 
Nineveh was a city without equal. It was the biggest, most powerful, most influential, some even say the most beautiful city in the world at that time. And yet Jonah, when he walks into that city, he wasn't there to see the sights or, or take in the view. Jonah was there for one reason and one reason only, to proclaim the word of the Lord to the people. As verse 4 continues, Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And you know what? Just like that, Jonah's job is done. Uh, you, you know, you read that verse and you almost wonder, what was all the fuss about? Like, like that's what Jonah was running from? And, you know, reading that verse, there's some people who read that verse and assume, you know what, Jonah is still sort of being a reluctant preacher. I mean, we're told he only manages to go one day into a city that's actually a three days journey. And then his sermon is actually one of the shortest in history. In Hebrew, his, his sermon is only five words long. So is Jonah holding back? Is he still sort of dragging his feet a little bit? Is he still being hesitant to answer, to fully answer this calling that God has put on his life? Well, I don't think that's the case here at all because I do think Jonah had settled in his, this settled in his mind back in chapter two while he was still inside the fish. He declares in verse nine, but with the voice of thanksgiving, I will, I with the voice of saying thanksgiving will sacrifice to you what I have vowed, I will pay. Um, I think that was Jonah saying to himself, you know what, I'm going to do this. I'm going to make this commitment. I'm not going to fail again if I'm given a second chance. I'm going to do it right this time. What I have vowed, he says, I will fulfill. I'll do what God has called me to do. I promise that this time there will be no more running away. And he doesn't run and he does what God told him. But I think even Jonah was probably taken aback at the result. Because look at verse 5. It says, and the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a, for a fast and they put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth and he sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. And let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. And what you have just heard is an account of what might be one of the, well, it definitely is one of the greatest revivals in history. And what makes this so unexpected, I think, is that the result is so unexpected. Nobody would have predicted this from this city that was so full of wickedness. As one pastor said it, most people had kind of put Nineveh on their no-way list. What I mean by that is people said to themselves, no way. Like, no way is Jonah going to be able to make a difference in that place. No way is his message going to get through. No way are those hard hearts of those people in Nineveh, no way are those hearts going to hear God's voice. 
No way are those proud people going to humble themselves. No way is God going to be able to work in that town. One commentator, one commentary even said, Nineveh was not only just a place that Jonah didn't want to go, it was a place so bad, so lost, so foul, that many thought it was a place that not even God would go. And yet we see that Jonah barely sets foot in this city. He preaches possibly the shortest sermon ever. And the city is shaken. Jonah speaks, and instead of thinking, like, who's the nutcase? They say, pardon? I mean, could you say that again? Could you repeat it? And, you know, maybe they elbow the guy next to them who wasn't paying attention. They say, hey, you have to listen to what this guy just said. I can kind of imagine a fall, you know, a hush falling on the marketplace. Eyes were turning. Ears became ready. Attention was fixed on Jonah and the message that he proclaimed. And then the people start moving because they knew other people needed to hear that, that, that truth as well. So they go home and they tell their family members. They tell their neighbors. They tell their friends. And word just begins to spread among the people. Then the officials here, and then some magistrates, and then city managers, and then the nobles, and finally we're told, word reaches even the ears of the king. And when the king hears, we're told that he gets up and gets off of his throne, gets on his knees, and leads the entire city in an act of great repentance. That's amazing. I mean... That is the impossible being made possible and happening right before Jonah's eyes. And make no doubt that that was a miracle. And you know, I know in the book of Jonah, it's that great fish who kind of steals the show. But I am convinced that the miracle of the great fish is nothing compared to the miracle of this great repentance that we see take place happening uh, in the hearts of the people of this great city. And it happened because God is a God of impossibilities. It happened because nothing is too difficult for God to do. And you know, I think a lesson we need to learn here is that God hasn't changed. You know, the same God that brought transformation to the city of Nineveh, the same God that parted the Red Sea, the same God that helped slay the giant, the same God that fed the multitudes, the same God who raises the dead to life is the same God who is ready to go to work in our lives here today. And stop just a moment to think about that. And just think about the greatness of the God we serve. Think about God being the God of impossibilities, not just in history, but in our lives, even today. And maybe ask yourself the question, what impossible situation are you facing? What in your life have you put on your no way list? Because maybe you're saying, no way. No way is my marriage going to last. No way are my kids going to be able to resist the influence of the world around them. No way is my work going to make it through this downturn. No way am I going to overcome these challenges. There's no way I'm going to be able to face these struggles. There's no way my circumstances are going to change. There's no way God could change that person. No way that God could heal that hurt. 
There's no way God could bring reconciliation to that broken relationship. There's no way my life is going to be the life I thought or I hoped it was going to be. You're saying no way. What in your life have you given up on? What have you said in your life that's never going to change? Why not give those things to God? Why not give God your no-way list and see what the God of impossibilities can do with it? Because Jonah saw firsthand how God can make a way when no one else thought it was possible. And you know, all I can say when I read this chapter is, what an amazing picture of the amazing God that we serve. A God who surprises us with his goodness. A God who sometimes even shocks us with his great grace and his great mercy. A God who reaches out to save even those people that we've deemed unsavable and who does what we thought was undoable. And yet God finds a way and he makes the impossible seem easy. And you know, the story is not done yet and we'll read more about that next time, about Jonah and the city that's saved. But for now, as we close, I just want to offer you a couple lessons that I think come from this passage. Because, you know, as I worked through this passage this week, there were so many things that just jumped off the page that I wanted us to see. I think there are still so many things in this passage that are so relevant, even for our lives right here, living today. And the first lesson that I really wanted to share with you is a lesson about God. And that just how God is a God of unfathomable grace. I mean, look at verse 10. When it says, when God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he didn't do it. He shows them mercy. He shows these sinners grace. You know, Jonah wasn't the only one who gets a second chance in the book of Jonah. Nineveh itself was offered life in the place of destruction. But you know, that's God's desire. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. That is the heart of God. God doesn't want people, any people, to live lives that are stuck in sin. Lives full of despair. Lives without hope. God wants instead to give people an opportunity to live a new kind of life in relationship with him. In fact, you know, there's a foreshadowing of this, I think, in Jonah's own message, even though it was five words long. When Jonah says, 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. That word overthrown actually has two possible meanings in, in Hebrew. It can mean total destruction, like what happened to Sodom and Gomorrah. But that word can also mean change. Or transformation, where it's the hearts of the people who are going to be overthrown by being transformed by repentance. And I think there's that double meaning because God intended all along to bring salvation to that city. And you know, there's something else here I, I want us to note. And that's when God, when God finally says, I will not destroy this city because of their wickedness. You know, God doesn't bring annihilation down. When God offers hope and forgiveness in the, to Nineveh instead of fire and brimstone, we need to understand that God does that because of Jesus. 
You see, God doesn't merely overlook the sins of Nineveh and say, you're not, no big deal. No, God pays the price for their sin. Personally, on the cross. Because the deliverance that was offered to Nineveh came at the cost of God's only son. And you know, that's true even though this is the Old Testament. That's true even though this happened hundreds of years before Jesus would even walk the earth. For this forgiveness is only possible because God's plan of salvation for all people was going to lead people directly to the cross of Jesus Christ. God's grace does not overlook their sin. God's grace instead sends Jesus to the cross to die for their sin so that they could be forgiven and God could bring salvation to them. Because God is a God of unfathomable grace. Which leads us to the next lesson we learn from our passage. And this is a lesson we learn from the Ninevites. And that is the need for repentance and confession when it comes to sin. Because look at, and for lack of a better word, look at the quality of the repentance shown here. The Ninevites confessed their sin openly. I mean, they didn't try to explain it away. They didn't offer excuses. They didn't rationalize it and say, you know what? You know, we're bad, but we're nowhere near as bad as the Babylonians. You know, we're better than so-and-so. No, they didn't do any of those things. They took responsibility for their own sin and their own wickedness. And when their sins are brought before them, there's genuine sorrow among these people. There's fasting. And not just fasting of food, but we're told fasting of drink as well. And it's not just for the people. Even the animals, their flocks and herds, they're, they're called to fast because the people are so full of regret. And there was sackcloth and ashes and as a further sign of humility and brokenness. And the people are ordered to cry out mightily to God in their grief. But you know what? Most important of all we see here, there's also a change in the hearts and the attitudes and even the behaviors of these people. The king commands them in verse 8, let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. They said to themselves, you know what? Anything that we're doing in our lives right now that's not honoring to God, we need to get rid of it. We need to stop doing it. And they made the change. They're not just sorry that they got caught in their sins. There's a genuine sorrow for sin that says we need to change the way that we're living. Genuine repentance and a turning from their evil ways. And then finally, notice the people responded to that sin immediately. You know, they didn't say to themselves, well, Jonah told us we have 40 days, so why don't we wait 39 days and we could deal with this on, you know, day 40 kind of thing. Uh, no, they dealt with their sin the moment that God made it plain to them. It really, it's, it's, it's a, this is a picture of true and genuine repentance in the hearts of these people. In fact, Jesus even says, Matthew 12, verse 41, says, the men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater is Jonah than Jonah is here. This is a genuine repentance of sin. And you know, there's a lesson there for us as well. Simply, when it comes to the sin in our lives, we need to deal with it. We need to get rid of it. We need to confess our sins and, and repent. Because, you know, I, I, do, I do believe that one of the dangers we face as believers 
is we can get this idea that there are some sins that God isn't bothered by very much. Some, there's some sins that are just acceptable, and it's okay to have them in our lives. But the reality of sin is that sin in our life is deadly. Any sin and all sin is deadly to our faith and our relationship with God if we don't deal with it. And our call is to repent and confess our sins. And I've said this to you before, but I'm convinced that many Christians today are living unfulfilled, empty, unproductive lives, spiritually speaking, simply because they have in some area of their life grown comfortable with sin that they've not repented of and they've not gotten rid of. They've just grown comfortable with some sin being present in their lives. But here's the good news. 1 John 1.9, if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We repent and we confess our sins before the God. And that leads us to a third lesson we should learn from our passage this morning. And this is the, I'm sort of overwhelmed by this when I read it this week, but the lesson is there is power in the word of God to bring change in our lives. Um, one thing I want to make clear is that Jonah didn't save Nineveh. God saved Nineveh. Because the Bible actually says in verse 5, Nineveh believed God. Nineveh didn't believe Jonah. They believed the word of God preached through Jonah. And you know, we kind of implied this earlier, but I don't think Jonah's message should have ever worked. It was only five words long. It was tragically short on details. And today we'd probably say it wasn't, you know, it was just too judgy in tone. It wasn't seeker sensitive at all. I mean, <laughs> It was a terrible presentation of the gospel. And yet those five Hebrew words of judgment became the words of salvation to this entire city because they were the word of God. Because this isn't Jonah just sort of talking off the top of the head. Jonah 3.2 actually tells us that this is the message God himself had given to Jonah for these people. This is a message that God prepared specifically for the Ninevites to hear. And the word of God does not return to him void. Even five words worth of it. And you'll never underestimate the power of God's word to work in a person's life. Uh, Hebrews 4.12 says, For the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. There's power in the word of God. There's power in the word of God to bring revival. There's power in the word of God for people to find victory over sin. There's power in the word of God to help people live in obedience. There's power in the word of God to change lives. God word, God's word prepares us to live lives of faith. It equips us. It corrects us. It guides us. It shapes us. It transforms us. Romans 1, verse 16, Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for salvation of everyone who believes. There is power in the word of God. So I want you to think about this as well. You know, the transformation that we see in Nineveh comes with only five words of God's truth that is spoken to them. Five words of God's truth can transform this entire city and change the hearts of the greatest city on earth. If that's what only five words can do, imagine how 
Many of you are holding in your hand right now a book with 66 books full of God's word. If you want change, if you want transformation, if you want to see lives turned around, you need to hold and hear and learn and love and proclaim the word of God. Because God's word changes lives. Changes the lives of others and changes the lives of us as well. Which brings us to the final lesson from Jonah this morning. This lesson's a personal one, that God can use your life. God can use you to accomplish amazing things if you're simply willing to live in obedience and obey what God has called you to do. You know, Jonah was sent on a mission from God. God God says to Jonah, Jonah, I am going to send you to a place that's full of lots of people who don't know me, never even heard of me. And I know it's going to be scary, and I know you're not going to have to say very much, but I want you to go there, and I want you to tell those people about who I am and how I feel about the way that they're living. And when you break down that mission that God gave to Jonah, I think you realize that that's a mission that all of us, as the people of God, have been given for the people around us. Every one of us has been asked to speak a message of hope to lost people, the lost people in our lives, in our neighborhoods, at our work, in our families. We're the messengers that God has sent to them. And I can't, we can't let the fear of rejection, we can't let the fear of failure stop us from doing what God has asked us to do in the lives of those people. In fact, let me actually ask you a question. Because if you were to share the gospel with someone, and they ended up saying, no, I'm not interested. Did you actually fail? Well, you probably feel like you did, but despite your feelings in sharing your faith, you have done exactly what God has called you to do. In sharing your faith, you were living in obedience. That's exactly what God asks and wants from us as his people. Because the results of sharing our faith, they're not up to us. The results are up to God, which is exactly what we see in Nineveh. Our part, like Jonah, is just just to obey. Our part is to be willing to speak the words God gives us when the moment comes. That's all that Jonah did. He went and he spoke, he opened his mouth, and God did the rest. But I'll confess in my life, even in my life as a pastor, the thought of evangelism can sometimes panic me. I mean, it is intimidating. It can be uncomfortable. It can be scary. Just like you, I wonder, what if I say the wrong thing? What if I offend somebody? What if they ask a question I don't know the answer to? What if I'm not convincing enough? What if they say no? Yet to be faithful, I know I still need to go and share my faith with people who need to hear it and tell those people about Jesus. That's, that's again, what God asks us as his people, as his church, to do. Matthew 28, beginning of verse 18, says, Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Jonah, go to Nineveh. Church, go.
to all the nations and proclaim the message that God has given to us. You know, outside the walls of this church and all around us in our community, there are people who need to hear the message. There are people who are desperate for the good news. And right now, that's more true than ever. People are living in fear. People are feeling lost and alone and confused. People are out there who need the healing and the holiness of the hope that can only be found in the message and truth of Jesus Christ. There are people all around us who need to hear that there is forgiveness of sin through the blood of Christ. But the only way for them to hear about it is for us to take it to them. For us to be willing to go and being willing to speak the words of life that they need to hear. And that's the difference that you can make. That's the difference that you can make right where you live, right in your community. That's the difference your life can have in the world around us. Because as it says in Romans 10, verses 13 to 15, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But then it says, well, how will they call on him, one who, in whom they haven't believed? And how are they to believe in him in one who they've not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? And if this morning you would like to witness the miracle of salvation in the lives of the people around you, I would encourage you just to answer that call. Because we serve a God of amazing grace and we have the words to speak that can lead people to salvation in Christ. And we can be a part of what God is doing and help people be free from sin and find eternal life. But like Jonah, it takes our obedience and a willingness to go and share our faith with the people around us and just to be faithful to all that God has asked us to do as his messengers of the good news. Let's pray. Father God, as we've been working our way through this book of Jonah and just seeing ourselves in that prophet's place, Lord, I realize that, Lord, even in my life, sometimes I am a reluctant preacher of truth. I, just, I see myself in Jonah. I see that sometimes I hesitate. Sometimes I make excuses and sometimes I just get too busy um, to really prioritize that message to, to proclaim the gospel. And Lord, we live in a great city. We live in a great community. We live in a, in a great world that is full of people who need to hear the words of life spoken to them. People who are lost without that truth. How will they hear if we don't proclaim it? I pray, Lord, that we would respond in our lives just with obedience to you. Knowing that, it, Lord, it's not about us. It's not about how eloquent we are. It's about you and your power and your might and your mercy and your strength to work through our obedience. And I pray that, that Lord, even those people around us that we think are unreachable or unsavable or uninterested, that, Lord, you would remind us that you are a God of the impossible. And that, Lord, you can reach even those people. And now, Lord, your promise to us is that you'll never forsake us. Lord, your promise to us is that you will be with us as we do this, even to the very end of the age. 
And Lord, I pray that, again, you're the God of the impossible, that you would give us courage to live in obedience, and that, Lord, through our obedience, we would see amazing salvation brought to the world, to the city, to the community around us. Pray that, Lord, we would, just like Jonah in that fish, that we would make that vow, that we would dedicate ourselves to that purpose, that we would live our lives being messengers of the good news to the world around us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.